deceived me Now here's a surprise I know that you have Cause there's magic in my eyes I can see for miles and miles and miles and The little tricks you play And never see you when deliberately you put things in my way Well here's a poke at you You're gonna choke on it too You're gonna lose that smile Because all the while I could see for miles and miles I could see for miles and miles I could see for miles and Hey gang, it's John. All right, we're rolling out another edition of Book Club. This time Dave and I talk with music writer Mike Evans. Uh, Mike has written a book recently called The Who, Much Too Much. It just came out, I believe, last week. And uh, it was put out by the same company that did John Azelwood's New Order book, Palazzo. What that means is that these books, as I've called them before, are sort of distillations. I mean, The Who story is massive. So... Mike does a brilliant job of distilling the highlights of the Who story into a book that's almost a coffee table book. It's gorgeous to look at. Hundreds of never-before-seen photos, reviews of every album that they've ever put out and every song. It's a really clever and helpful and beautiful way to present a band's story. John's book was excellent, and so was Mike's. So we talked with Mike about his feelings for the Who and his history with the band. Mike's done a lot of music writing. Look him up. Look him up on Goodreads or something. You'll see all the different books that he's written and all the different articles and everything like that like that, that he's done in his career. It's massive. So if you're a Who fan, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation because we get pretty deep into what the Who mean, what they were like, the dynamics, all that kind of stuff. Okay? And then check out The Who, Much Too Much. I put a link to the publishing company, Palazzo, in the description of this uh, episode. Okay? Enjoy. All right. Well, so first of all, uh, one of the other reasons why I wanted to bring Dave on here is because he's a diehard Who junkie. I like The Who a lot, but he's he's a lot more passionate about it even than I am. So I wanted to start with getting some of the basics out of the way, and then... um, just letting, you know, getting as nerdy as we want to get. First and foremost, I mean, you've been a music writer for years and years. Were you, how did you get approached about this book and why? Um, well, I'd done a book with the same publishers, uh, Palazzo, and quite a bit of editorial work with them as well. But, but I, I did a book in uh, uh, 2009, which was the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Uh, called um, Woodstock Three Days That Rocked the World. Mm-hmm. And that was with the same publishing. It came out with uh, Sterling in the US. Okay. And uh, so I did that with um, with Palazzo, and I've done a lot of editorial work with him over the years. And um, like all these things, they often just come out of conversations 
over coffee or whatever, and we we were kicking some ideas around, and um, we put the idea of the Who because uh, we felt it was time for this kind of format to do something oh, interesting. And often these things go through a lot of process. Yeah. You have to, you know, you have to present the idea to publishing teams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all boring stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually, we we thought, okay, um, they decided to do it. Yeah, and that was that was just before lockdown, just before uh, the COVID. So, um, in a curious way, the, the the timing was quite fortuitous because it gave me a lot more time to sit down and do sure. it. locked in in the house Um, yeah so that's the way you know okay and and we all agreed that even though there's a lot of material out there about the about the who as there is with most of the big rock bands um, there's a new generation coming up who are not familiar with 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 a lot of the stories you know yeah something I I had um, I spoke with John Azelwood a month or two ago who just published his book on New Order and Joy Division with them as well and the word that I come back to with these kinds of books that they're doing are distillations. Yes, the Who story is so big and massive, and there's lots of books out there. But what you've done and what John had done with his book, I feel, is sort of distilled the story into the highlights and mm-hmm. uh, made it almost a great like starting point or overview of of the band with the, a lot of the key moments in their history. One of the other things I love that you guys are doing in these books are including the album uh, reviews going album by album, uh, song by song. These are the back, this is the background. This is the, you know, kind of a critique of each tune. I love that you guys do this. I'm curious what your history with the who has been. Well, my history with the who has, has been as a, uh, apart from obviously, like everybody else, being being a fan, especially especially of their their earliest stuff, because that's when I was a, a contemporary, if you like, in the sixties, was um, actually as a musician playing on the same bill, you know. So I played with the Who several times in the states. <laughs> who I read that in your bio. What band were you with? I was with a curious a curious band called the Liverpool Scene, uh, and we were a kind of poetry uh, kind of poetry rock almost poetry and jazz but more poetry rock mm-hmm. kind of review so it's poetry and folk music and i, I play saxophone and and i used to do poetry and, mm. with, with these guys but um my main role is as a saxophone player which i still do in r&b bands so we did we we did a an, an ill-fated tour of the states. When I say ill-fated, we lost lost lots of money, and, uh, but we were we we were on support with Joe Cocker, the Who, Kinks, and all those guys that were knocking around on that. This is in 1969, and did a couple of gigs with them in the in the UK as well. Uh, and then I kept in touch with Townsend, Pete Townsend. I didn't keep in touch, but I was. I, we touch base from time to time because I, in the seventies, I got involved with the UK Musicians Union mm. uh, as an official, kind of trying to look after rock musicians' end of it because the, the the MU, like the union in the states, had rather lost touch with the rock thing and was was still living in the nineteen forties or what have you. Um, so. I had a job there for about seven or eight years, uh, seemingly 
representing that, that end of the business in terms of the musician's interest. And Pete was very keen on that. He was a kind of great supporter of that sort of notion, you know, the, the musicians or the creative people should have more say in the way the industry was run as far as, far as they could. Mm. So we, we we kept in kind of vague touch on that level. So he's always a bit of a supporter, you know. Mm-hmm. That's great. Are you, um, I mean, like are the, you've written so many books. I'm looking over a list right here in front of me, Fleetwood Mac, Woodstock, The Beatles, Neil Young, Ray Charles. I mean, there's tons of great books in here. Were the Who... Have they always had, um, I don't know, a special place for you where you, did you see them? I mean, you said you played with them, but did you, did you keep uh, tabs on them over the years? What's your relationship to the Who specifically? Um, no, no, as I say, apart from that sort of informal links with Townsend when I was doing the union thing, um, not, not particularly. It was just one of the bands that uh, made a big impression, obviously, over the years. Yeah. And uh, and we've and we've all got our favorite tracks and all that, you know. Sure, and, I'm going to ask you uh, about that later. I mean, I I was let's say the impact of the Who for me because of the era I first heard them, which was the original era, was was obviously um, songs like "I Can See for Miles" and "My Generation" and those kind of very iconic. Things and interestingly, it's a bit like the Beatles. It was the singles rather than the albums that, that hit you first. You know, they, they they were as much a singles band as an album band, as were the Beatles and as were the Stones in the, during the sixties. And so that that impressed me, and the fact that they were ten years before the event, they were like a punk band. You know, in as much as they they they, they weren't as in a, inarticulate as some of the punks musically, no. but they but they had that same dynamic, that kind of. Yeah. Uh, raw, stripped to the bone dynamic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to say, I also think that their lyrics relate more to um, the frustration or angst more than a lot of those other 60s bands. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, even if you just, I mean, it, just talking simplistically, just my generation, it was a kind of actual, so simple, and yet it, 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 it addressed a sort of a, a, a psycho or, a, or a, an angst that, 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 that certainly the Stones or the Beatles or the Kings never, well, the Kings maybe, but they never quite addressed it in that, in that direct way. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, in the latter years, you know, uh, I say the latter years, I mean, the latter years, the band, the Beatles and Lennon particularly addressed things like that but uh, not in quite that spontaneous way. Mm. It was more as if they kind of, that was the next thing to do. Whereas with, with, with Pete Townsend, it was, it was fairly spontaneous. He's writing stuff like that from the start, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one question that I've always wondered about, and then I'm going to um, turn it over to Dave. I've always wondered, and maybe I'm just completely naive or stupid about this. When you hear about early who music it's always related to it's always referred to as R&B maximum R&B and today I think of R&B I think of black artists I think of some hip-hop soul music you know the nothing like the who when did R&B go from defining what the who was doing to defining what largely black artists were doing 
probably around the late 70s up until today. Do you know, yeah, well, Mike? The, the, the label has shifted. It, it, it shifted across the spectrum because in the, in the early 60s, there was a great R&B rhythm and blues boom in England, but it was influenced purely by black, black American and mainly Chicago-based black American rhythm and blues. Because mm-hmm. So the, 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 the whole thing, rhythm and blues, was first cotton on in the, in, in the late 40s because it was the... In in the uh, Billboard magazine, there was uh, in the states there was the race charts, mm. which were we all know were, were, were about music aimed at and created by Black Americans and aimed at that market. In 1940, I think it was 48 or thereabouts, who used to produce Ray Charles, uh, Atlantic Records. Oh, uh, Ahmed Erdogan. No, no, that he was a uh, a journalist on on billboard at the time and he um <clears throat> he decided at some point that the race chart w- w- was getting rather outdated and loaded with you know kind of well racial in- innuendo yeah. if you like and so he he, he single-handedly changed it to the rhythm and blues chart uh and so that's where the the the, the, the name for if you like, what was then Black American pop music as opposed to Black American jazz or Black American blues, but Black American pop music, which was uh, Louis Jordan and Winoni Harris and, and then yeah. very early Ray Charles, it was labelled rhythm and blues. So when the English blues boom came along in the, in the early 60s, it was bands, English bands, cottoning onto that music which included The Who. I mean, the first album if it was full of, well, I say full, it, it had several cover versions of, of R&B and, and early soul classics, James Brown, uh, I think it was a Slim Harpo number there. They're, you know, they, so they, they, were out, they, they were part of that English uh, cult. So, of course, they called themselves Maximum R&B, which cut quite a selling point because it was part of that whole R&B boom, which was based at the Marquee Club in London. Yeah. Okay. A lot of it, which of course is where that poster, which is that with that phrase on, first promulgated. Okay, um, got it. So well, it's so it's, so it's it's that whole classic thing of uh, young English musicians, mm-hmm. yeah. to a degree, yeah. exporting back to the states Black American yeah. music. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's a distillation. I mean, just how Led Zeppelin is heavily blues based, but the sound that Led Zeppelin was creating is different than Led Belly. Or Absolutely. Rock. Yeah. Same thing. It's just distillation through their, their perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, funnily enough, the band I was telling you about this oddball band, we, we actually supported Zeppelin on their first UK tour. Oh, wow. Uh, and then jammed with them at the, at the Albert Hall on the last number. I remember playing, playing long tall Sally. <laughs> wow. Um, with them at the Albert Hall in '69, uh, but but that's how how mixed it was then. You could have this crazy yeah. poetry band and <laughs> a, a kind of what was proto heavy metal blues band uh, jamming. You know, <laughs> yeah. That, that uh, before I turn it over to Dave, there was that was another tidbit that I took from your book that I didn't know. I guess Jimmy Page plays guitar on the Who's "Bald Headed Woman." Is that right? right? Well, this is what we, we, I, I didn't know this until I was researching this book that that he he played the guitar solo on "You Really Got Me" the Kinks hit, really first hit. Jimmy he, Page he, did. 
I don't think I knew that. He's the guitar solo. I only discovered when I was researching And when I was researching this, I discovered that, as was often the practice, with a new pop band, the producers often thought, hmm, they're okay, but the guitarist might not hit it right. Or the drum, like the Beatles with the drumming, you know, they didn't let Ringo play on the first single because George Martin had, hadn't heard how he was, you know. Um, so they brought in another guy, you know, for that first single. And so they were a bit like that anyway, these producers. And Townsend was pissed off when this session man, this Jimmy Page, turned up and said, oh, I've been booked for the session in, kind of in case you need me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then it transpires that it was it was Shel Tammy, the same producer, uh, who'd produced the King's single. And in fact, Page was on that playing the guitar solo. Wild. Couple of couple of months, couple of months earlier, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go for it, Dave. Um, as a side note on that, I think he would have been a young guy when that happened because he was born in '44, so he would have been like 12 or th- no, nah, can't be right. No, 44. No. Yeah. What was Baldwin? Oh, Twenty-one. Was what, 21? I was going to say like 65. twenty. Yeah, twenty-one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, young guy. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know how deep we want to get. Are, are you are you a pretty big Who guy? Not as big as I'm more of kind of outside observer in that sense of that. I'm very aware of what they were doing over the years and keen on a lot of the stuff. But I'm not a, I'm not a, an expert on all the albums or anything. I mean, obviously, I listened to the old albums in depth for this book and wrote about them. But 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 um, prior to that, I hadn't got out of my way and collected at a definitive like I have like I have a definitive Ray Charles collection or a definitive. Bob Dylan collection. There you go. I haven't got a definitive Who collection. Yeah, Bob Dylan's great. Big fan. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, one, um, uh, I, I, I recently, like a few years ago, that a super uh, went pretty deep into their into their work. Did you ever hear any of the uh, John Entwistle solo records? Oh yeah. Well, I, I dug into some when I was listening to this. They were they were quite. I mean, he was a great musician. Like, he was the most schooled musician of the four, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of formal training. He was in the local classical orchestra, when he, a youth orchestra when he was 12 or something. And so he, he, he was the most... So when he made those solo albums, they were all a bit oddball, but it was quite interesting because there was a lot of musicianship there that, you know, formal musicianship wasn't there on the Who, Who albums. You know arrangements and things. When you toured with the, or when you played with the Who, around what era was that? Was that the early to mid, or was that the mid to late sixties or late sixties, sixty nine? Okay, yeah. The the it was just when they were starting to tour the states in a big in a, in a big way. They'd yeah. done Woodstock. They'd done Woodstock in. They'd the done September. Woodstock when you okay in, in in the August whatever it was. We toured in the October November whatever. Okay. And and it was I think I don't know how many we did with them, but it was just hit and miss who you who you who you were booked to support on a particular yeah. thing, you know. Something you I of seeing alive. Sorry. Do you have any memories of seeing them alive at that era? Oh yeah. Well, as I say, because we were supporting them on 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 uh, on, on dates, you'd see them alive a lot, you know, both backstage and on stage. Tell me about that. Like I I. I the sixty-nine to seventy-two era for the for the Who live is pretty, pretty unbeatable. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were, and they were still obviously 
the classic lineup. Yeah, they still had it was the original four, and when no trimmings, there was no extra personnel or anything. It was just the who, you know, the the, the four of them, um, and they'd. By that time, they had a they had a terrific um, repertoire because they had their original repertoire, if you like, and then they had the Tommy repertoire. So they were actually already um, broadening their scope. So the so the shows were were great great variety, you know. Were they smashing up their equipment at the end of every show? No, there was a bit of gestures occasionally when they were really out of it you know but, yeah. but it wasn't a, it, it, it had already ceased to become a kind of part of the inevitable part of the stage act it, it just happened spontaneously i think by then when they were pissed off with something or whatever but um it was it, it was more of a regular thing in the in in the 60s up to, you know from the you know from the from their first hits that was their kind of became their gimmick and then as towns had said in Townsend said in uh, an autobiography, he said uh, it got to the point where we were just going through the motions and it wasn't his original idea was this auto-destructive thing that he that he touched on in art school by this guy, uh, Gustav Metzger, who was his tutor in the art school, who, who, who had done symposiums on auto-destructive art and paintings that lit themselves up and this kind of stuff. He cottoned on to that with, with Metzger and and used that as a kind of perhaps just a justification for sure. this guitar smashing, which became very quickly their trademark mm-hmm. uh, and helped them along with a lot of publicity. Yeah. But, but he realised after a couple of years that it was already becoming a, a stale, mm-hmm. you know, thing. So right. You know, after, that, after that, it just happened occasionally, you know. Yeah. I... Um... <laughs> One of the other things that became very clear, I've always assumed this, but reading it in your book, is it feels like the shadow of the Lifehouse project colors everything Pete does from then on. I mean, almost every album you talk about includes a couple of songs that were intended for Lifehouse or whatever. Everything. I mean, I wonder, it just made me wonder what the scope of that project would have been had he completed it when yeah, he wanted yeah. to, you know what I mean? I know it's yeah, exactly. No, no, I agree. It's like, as you say, the, 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 those numbers were almost like out outtakes for the from outtakes from the album that never happened. Yeah, outtakes from the project that never happened. Yeah, but they, as you say, they do keep cropping up, and um, uh, I guess it's like all these things where something you develop something and it doesn't it doesn't quite materialize mm-hmm. all that you don't want all that development to be wasted mm-hmm. so it, it's there i mean it, it's happened with other artists where they've made a, an album that's just not come to fruition but they sure. pick up the pieces they pick up the pieces the good stuff crops up elsewhere mm-hmm. yeah it just surprised me how long that the the tail of that project lasted i mean almost yeah. every album has a mm. couple of songs that and were I think intended was, for that and it was like a lot of these things, which, you know, Tamler's not the first and not the last to make the mis- not maybe the mistake, but getting into the position where the thing is so ambitious with multimedia and actors and, you know, whatever it might be, ballet dancers, filmmakers, so complex that it doesn't happen, but, but, the, but the essential music is still there, you know. 
and it's so, it, so, so I think it was the kind of ambition of the project that that probably um, prevented it from happening. Did either of you guys listen to the BBC like five hour long quasi complete Lifehouse collection? Mm-hmm. No. So around 99, 2000, and I felt like your book touched on it. I don't remember. Uh, Townsend went ahead and he took all of his demos. He took uh, album cuts and he compiled them. And he said, this would have been the complete Lifehouse. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. 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 I never heard it. I never heard but, it. Either. But <laughs> there's not a physical physical format that you can buy of that? Um, I don't believe so, which is surprising because like the Who, yeah. anything they could have. But uh, yeah. yeah, they huh. uh, they formally released it. They also released a comic book adaptation of it like last year. Really? Yeah. Have you seen that? Uh, seen no, because it's not by Pete. So it was by, no. it was done in conjunction with Pete, but he didn't write it. Like I've, I've tried to read all of his stuff, but as much of a struggle as some of that's been. Yeah. Um, Mike, I wanted to ask you too, what's, <laughs> I think we all kind of know, but I'm curious what your take is on the nature of the relationship between Roger and Pete, because I, it's like they need each other to complete each other. Yeah. Um, but they feel, they seem at times so resentful oh, that yeah. that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I always think about like I really like Roger's solo material. The, those '80s albums I think are fun. Uh, they're not you know classics or anything, but they're solid. And read, reading you talk about when he was having to kind of go back to playing theaters in the '80s and how frustrating that was for him. And I just thought, no one gets to play stadiums forever. Like it, either you are fine being a solo artist and you're going to go this path. And a theater is just going to have to do, or you're going to have to hit your wagon to Pete Townsend for the rest of your life. So you can keep playing stadiums, you know, it just seems unfortunate to me. It's a shame that Roger can't write, isn't a good enough songwriter to make something Mm -hmm. happen on his own because they're reliant on each other wholeheartedly. Because the same goes for Pete. Pete could have built a stadium on his own. No, he could. You're exactly right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's, it's been, always been a very interesting relationship because and for years and years they weren't the best of weren't the best of buddies they are latter years i i believe i i i understand but that that kind of friction came of being from quite quite different backgrounds not socially i mean at the same kind of they were all fairly modest working class or whatever you like to call it backgrounds none of them were what we call posh. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, Pete came from a family of musicians. His dad was a professional sax player. His mum was a, a singer with dance bands. Uh, he went to art school. He got all these fancy ideas about <laughs> pop art and destructive art and what have you. Whereas Roger was a, an ordinary working guy who was going to end up in a, not steel mill, but in a mm-hmm. some kind of factory making steel, whatever it is, and just enjoyed singing bits of rock and roll in, in, in pubs, you know, and obviously given the chance to make something more of the rock and roll and, than steel, he, he took that path. But, um, so it's quite different at that level. And the articulation of that is that Roger for years and years was one of those no messing guys who just wanted to make it as a pop star. Whereas Pete already had fancy ideas that may or may not have come to fruition. 
which from, probably from the start, because I work with guys like that, that probably from the start, one guy in the band will come up with most of the presumably bright ideas and the other guys just think he's being pretentious or they just want to play rock and roll covers or what have you, you know, and just that that's not decrying Roger's talent, but it, but his talent wasn't in that area of coming up with all sorts of what one would have called at the time would have called arty ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they were quite different they had a quite different perspective on what they were doing. And when there was any problems in the band or any friction, that came out, mm-hmm. you know. And it obviously came out when there were problems like with with Keith Moon's drinking or mm-hmm. and Whistle rushing off and doing solo projects when the others had never done anything like that. So there was kind of frictions within the band, but, but with Pete and Roger, it came out in this... Uh, one was the kind of arty one, and one was the no, 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 no frills. Just let's get on with playing music, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, and and of course, Entwistle was like that. He, when they stopped touring, he 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 was the one who dug his heels in and wanted to carry on touring. When they decided to pack it in, you know. Well, when I and something I took from your book, I don't think you said this outright, but my takeaway from it was that Entwistle wanted to remain on the road because yes. he likes to do drugs and he likes to get yeah. with girls and he likes to party. Yeah, yeah. He likes that yeah. lifestyle and yeah, yeah. he's not good at sitting home and sure. uh, doing other things. He wants to be yeah. out on the road. Cause that's where the party is. And it ultimately yeah. killed him. I mean, yeah. before it should have, but, and you don't come out and say that, but I feel like that's implied in what you're saying that when he, when they break up and he starts this super group, the best, and they that's go on true. a tour, but they come home and they're broke. It's not enough. He keeps finding any other way he can to sustain a rock and roll lifestyle on the road and nothing yeah. does it except the who. And so he's got to keep going back to that cash yeah, cow yeah. because he wants to be, he wants to do drugs and be with girls yeah. and play yeah, rock yeah. and roll. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I'm sure you're right. And, and, and in a different, in a different uh, aspect, so is Keith Moon, you know? Yeah. True. Of course, and we all know what happened with Keith, but it was yeah. the same, you know. I, I think about Fleetwood Mac. You wrote that Fleetwood Mac book. You take, I mean, Mick and, and John McVie might be kind of like this, but I also think they have some interests outside of music. Yes. Like, you know, Mick can live in Hawaii and John can live on his boat, but you don't get the, they probably like the spoils of the road, but you get the impression John needed that and mm. couldn't function without it. Anyway, yeah, continue, yeah. Dave. What were you going to say? So on Entwistle's solo record, as I understand it, he like wrote it on a piano while his like brand new baby daughter just sat next to him. Mm-hmm. And like the lyrical themes are a guy who is sitting on a like sitting on a ledge, contemplating suicide and realizing it's probably the best avenue. There's one song about a guy who sits outside of women's uh, houses and watches them change. There's one song about a guy who propositions a girl and she turns out to be a cop and he's begging her not to tell his family. And, and I mean, I, it, it, it makes me think a, obviously the guy's a great dark sense of humor, but B, um, you know, yeah, like you said, maybe there's, there's something about him, some need that wasn't being satisfied by his family life and he needed to, to, to look elsewhere. Also, I felt like he wanted a tour because he was always broke. He's had well, really both. Yeah. The, the money never came automatically in their pockets. I mean, when, when they enticed what, when Keith was in a bad way and they, wanted to get him back to England. He was, you know, he was living in LA or whatever. 
and um, he wanted to, they wanted to get him back to England, and uh, they gave him that arranged for him to have that Harry Nielsen flat, which is where in fact he died. Apparently, they paid for him to come out and paid for the flat because he had no money. Mm. He was living in LA with no money, so well, you know, no accessible means of support where where he could just hire hire a flat in London. He couldn't, so they paid for all that to get him to get him back. To try and get him out of his yeah. out of his rut, but of course it was too late. Yeah, I, I would think, love to see okay. real time net worth of, of all of these old sixties and seventies musicians on a year by year basis. Because, like, you know, uh, the Stones, for example, were bankrupt in the sixties and seventies. Oh yeah, you know how the Beatles did. Bowie, I know, had tremendous yeah. financial issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Who had tremendous financial issues. I think Led Zeppelin did great, but that was only because of Peter Grant. That's uh, right. Pink Floyd almost went bankrupt. New New Order and Joy Division. I mean, they're a decade later, but they they had mm-hmm. tremendous money issues. They didn't make money until well after their great period. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's kind of common for a lot of these guys. That they were able yeah. to cash in later based upon uh, their fruits earlier. Yeah. The that, that, I mean, that was one reason why in the mid uh, late 70s, I, um, I took this job at the Musicians Union because I was aware that at the lower level, I mean, if if your big names are getting ripped off and haven't got any money, what about the the guys the guys down there? You know, they, 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 people were literally paying to play. You know, they they yeah. they, they pay to play on the mark support spot on the marquee or wherever. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things that drew me into that. Uh, as I say, and 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 Pete Townsend in his own way was very keen on that. He kind of used to send me, you know, we keep in touch, and he'd say, you know, kind of keep up the good work. But the scene was like, I, I don't know what it's like now because it's a totally different scene, but it was so, the financial side was, which w- w- was so uh, exploitative, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something I wanted to touch on too, that I didn't know, this was amazing trivia. Maybe you, maybe you knew Dave, but I didn't realize that Phil Collins was being considered to replace Keith Moon after oh, yeah. he died. He, you well, didn't know he that either, he, Dave? A, a, Apparently he offered his services. I don't know if he was ever being considered, but apparently he said, you know, offered to do it. And and, and Pete said, no, I've already got somebody in mind, which was Kenny. Yeah. (laughs) How different would that have been if Phil had, you know, taken to the who and they would have continued all that. I mean, Phil owned the eighties. Our entire eighties experience would be so different if he didn't do that, you know? Yeah. 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 Wild. Where, where was where was Phil Collins in '78? Was he still in Genesis? Yeah, I think his first yeah, yeah. solo album. They had, had a bit of a yeah, they'd had a bit of a dip, and he he, he was kind of as we say twiddling his thumbs. You know, he wasn't doing much. Then Genesis was off the boil, and he'd done earlier on. He'd done he'd done Brand X, that offshoot of Genesis, which is a jazz jazz rock kind of offshoot. And uh, that was that was in the middle seventies, Brandex, when when he was playing with them, and then Genesis took off again. So it was up and down with Genesis, and, th- and this was during one of the downs. Okay, yeah, I think his gentle. first solo album came out in like eighty. So oh, this right. would have been seventy eight, seventy nine. Would have been around Duke Abacab, I think that period. Right. Anyway, continue, Dave. Anyway. Super tangential, but you guys hear that Phil Collins is obsessed with the Alamo, and I believe yeah. he's like the largest collector of Alamo. <laughs> yeah, he's like one of the world experts on Alamo memorabilia. Um, 
Okay. I had another question and then I'll, uh, before I let Dave go too, another one that I thought was kind of interesting was that Pete talks about how much he didn't like to do Woodstock, oh, but yeah. he agreed to do live aid. And I wondered if you knew what happened in that time. Is it just that he got caught up like everyone else did in the hype of live aid? Well, uh, everybody else is doing it. So I guess I better do it too. Or had he kind of softened on that kind of thing? I wondered if he just was like yeah. no more big shows. No, I think times had changed. I mean, Woodstock, you know, 69 mm-hmm. or even Monterey two years before that, those big festivals were still fairly few and far between and usually badly organized. Well, certainly Woodstock was. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so I, I know Townsend and Daltrey absolutely hated that whole hippie thing, you know, that it represented, as, he, as one said, it was just a load of people stolen on acid in a, in a muddy field, you know, what, what, what's, so, what's so attractive about that, you know? Yeah. And that, that's not a revolution, that's just whatever. And he said all that. And then there was a famous scene where he kicked Abby Hoffman off the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And so there was all that scene, and um, and he deliberately uh, during that era he deliberately st- started dressing in uh, white overalls, what we call overalls, you know, like workman's clothes, mm-hmm. and Doc Martin's boots. He didn't look like a hippie at all. This is Townsend, you know. Mm-hmm. He wore those white, what we call overalls, yeah, um, which is like working working man's attire. Sure. Like guy working on a building site or whatever, you know, which was the complete antithesis of hippie clothes, you know. Uh, and he, he did that very consciously to say, you know, up you to the to the whole the whole triviality of that side of things, you know. He yeah. wasn't knocking the music, but but it was everything else that went with it that that he never found particularly he was right. never sympathetic to, never sympathetic to. Right. Something uh, you mentioned in the book, them getting paid, I think it's $11,200 to pay play Woodstock. But there's a story attached to that. Can you remind us what that story is? Uh, was this where they, 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 they had to be paid? Oh, but they had to go, that's right. They wanted cash. Yeah. And they wanted the money right up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they did They did a, what well, in the music business we used to call it Chuck Berry. <laughs> they did a Chuck Berry where they insisted on cash. Right. And, uh, and they had to send, the promoter actually send, send somebody to the local bank and get, get him, woke him up in the middle of the night to get money out the safe. <laughs> right. That's right. And didn't they have to like do it on a helicopter because the, the you yeah, know, there was no right. car yeah, getting get out in, of there. You yeah. couldn't get in or out of the, out the site. And, and, and they actually took a helicopter into town. To- <laughs> that's right. I thought that was wild. Yes. They also, yeah. they also couldn't drink any water because they were afraid it was all laced with acid. And they also that's didn't right. come on stage till like three or four in the morning because uh, everything was so that's late. Right. Yeah. Oh, everything was late. Yeah, everything went well. At the end of the festival, which was finishing on Sunday night, Hendrix finishes his set at mid- midday on Monday, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, everything went back that. Um, yeah. Everything was so late that everything went back. Um, so he actually it was at half a day late. That's right. <laughs> and only played to like 10,000 people or something like that versus yeah. the. Yeah, that's 10, right. Because they don't, they don't yeah. drag it out. And, yeah, go on. Yeah. All right, I got some other questions, but go for it, Dave. Come back to me. Give okay, me okay. Um, some other things I want to ask you about is, I thought it was, first of all, I thought it was total BS that they named Meaty, Beady, Big and Bouncy 
supposedly off of each member of the band. I didn't buy that at all. Did you? No, I don't know where I read it, but it was a kind of, I I, I, I think it's a a, a publicity man's uh, Mm -hmm. concoction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was the first Who CD I had. And for a while there. Yeah, because I was like you, Mike. I was, uh, Dave and I were talking about this earlier. I was more of the opinion that the Who were a singles band. That you didn't. You know what I mean? Like I don't need yeah, yeah, their albums. I they're who you get a greatest hits and you're fine. And I so th- I think that's one of the reasons why I've always really liked the Who, but never been obsessive, is because it wasn't until later in my adulthood that I got Tommy and I got Quadrophenia and yeah, I yeah. W- dug into these albums and and who's next and saw what was really going on there. Because prior to that, I just assumed all you needed was a good greatest hits album. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One thing I think is remarkable about the who is, I mean, they've been around essentially since what, 1963, 62, and they only have a, a dozen records. Mm. Oh frankly, yeah. There was a dozen albums. Yeah. I would argue three or four throwaways, you know, and yeah. Um, they so made a really small oeuvre for such a huge. Oh yeah. They, they only made a dozen, a dozen studio albums. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, the rest are either compilations or, or live albums, but yeah. um, there was 12. Uh, I mean, and that's over all those years. I mean, what's your take on the last? The, the, the Beatles, the Beatles made ten in eight years. Exactly. <laughs> but then jacked it in, you know. Yeah. But um, it is, and of course, the Stones made thirty or forty. I don't know. Right. Studio albums. That's a good question, Dave. Um, Mike, have you heard the new Who album? Do you have an opinion? Well, of course you did because you wrote yeah, about yeah, it yeah, in yeah. the book. But what's your take on it? I think it was great. I mean, it's great because it. The fact that it actually occurred after, I don't know, what, 15 years or something, is 14 years, I don't know, but, but it's remarkable in itself, given the circumstance. Yeah. Uh, and it's ironic that it happened just before the the COVID, the lockdown, because really? like everything else came to a halt anyway. Yeah. As I say, hence the timing on this book that we, <laughs> we decided yeah. to do it. Then suddenly I had... I had all the time in the world to do it. <laughs> Dave, have you heard it? What's your take on the new Who album? I I, I thought it was uh, I thought it was great actually. So really, the one before the one that came out in like '06, Endless Wire. Endless Wire. I didn't like Endless Wire, like and so it. I didn't. I haven't even heard the new Who album because I'm sort of you know trepidatious yeah. about it. Yeah. So I didn't like Endless Wire, um, and uh, yeah, I, I I think the new one's honestly great. Like good. Good as anything up to the Who by numbers or no, it is good, yeah, yeah, okay. and it's a mixed bag. It's a, it, it's generally a mixed bag. I mean, there's some kind of quasi electronic stuff. There's straight kind of old fashioned Who kind of pop. I think Townsend called it Whoish. <laughs> he said there's yeah. some Whoish numbers on there, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a good mixed bag, and it's. Uh, I mean, as I say, considering they hadn't had one out for years and years, it was a. Refreshing just to hear it. Mm-hmm. Well, and supposedly Townsend came forward with all these demos, and then uh, Roger would say, "Well, you know." Uh, so, for example, on one portion there was rapping, and Roger's like, "I'm not going to rap." <laughs> so, um, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll filter this through what I am willing or able to do with my new exactly. voice, and then we'll make that happen. Well, yeah. What I'm, I'd be curious about is, you know, Townsend hasn't released a solo record since '93. And I think he he has, he has a home studio. I know I know he just moved, but he I have to because he's married. He's with that that new artist girl. I, I have to imagine he uh, 
he's been recording and there's just a huge trove there of stuff that he doesn't really feel like it's worth his energy or time to release. It, as a, one last addendum, I saw them live on the most recent tour and they didn't play a single song off the new record. Really? really? Yeah. That's interesting. I'm annoyed. I bought a ticket online from SeatGeek or StubHub or one of those things. They were supposed to be here two years ago and they ended up canceling um, or postponing, I should say. The key word is postponing because it was one of like three shows where Roger was having voice issues. You mentioned it even in the book, Mike. And they rescheduled for May of the following year. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. of course, COVID has happened. And so right. yeah. I've yeah. never, I, and you're not, when you buy from these vendors, you can't have your money back until the show is officially canceled. So mm. I don't have a ticket and I also don't have my money. And I won't until this show is either rescheduled officially or canceled yeah, officially. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm frustrating. In, I'm in the same position, not not to do with the uh, concert tickets, but with it, a flight to New Zealand. My son was uh, in New Zealand, and we we were going to New Zealand the following week when when uh, COVID started, and of course New Zealand was the first one to lock down. I'm I'm still waiting for the money from British Airways yeah. for grand. Yes, I know, right? So frustrating. Um, one one point on Roger's voice. I, when I saw him the last time, it was in Madison Square Garden, and um, he berated the audience like three times, like "Stop smoking pot," and I guess uh, marijuana smoke around his throat causes it to close up. Right, and, right. Uh, uh, really, he had to take like a breather for a minute there. Yeah. Wow. I think I think the last time I heard the well, certainly was the last time I heard the Who live, which is a long time ago. It was um, a concert in Hyde Park in London with Dylan, actually, and Alanis Morissette and a whole crowd of people. But they they, they were performing uh, Quadrophenia live. Mm. And they were the headliners, not Dylan. Uh, and it was um, a, a big summer open air. It was for Roger's... Oh, charity? Teenage, teenage mm. Cancer Trust, yeah. 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 It was for That's that, cool. yeah. Um, okay, Mike, I I feel like we need to talk for a minute about Pete's child pornography uh, issue. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what's your take on that? It sound, I, it, my impression from what I had always heard was that, yes, he had this child pornography on his computer, but it was because he was researching for... Well, that's I think, what he said, yeah. Yeah, because I think he had been molested or something as a kid. And so yes, it wasn't yes. that he got off on watching it. It was that he was researching. No, that's it. right. Do you do you take that as gospel? Th- do you I think th- that's where it is? I think I do, because because um, as you say, he, 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 he had an element, uh, uh, he suffered from an element of that in his childhood. Also, it, it crops up from time to time in, in or, or in implication in Tommy, in Quadrophenia. It actually crops up as a, as a, an un, unspoken background to, mm-hmm. to certain characters. Mm-hmm. And so it was, uh, and which again was drawn from his own experience, I think. Yeah. So it comes as no surprise that he was interested in solving or exploring that kind of problem, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to take his word for it because, okay. well, because the other likelihood is the other the alternative is less likely. I think in his case, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Also, I, uh, the song, oh, the album, Tommy, the, the song that he's referring to is Uncle Ernie, and from what I heard, right. he didn't. Right. He could write the song because it was too 
like close or personal or really so he had Entwistle write the song. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, I um I've never known for sure, you know. I mean no, stars never, do a lot of crazy things. So I, yeah, I, I sure. wasn't oh, sure. Absolutely. We yeah. will never know. Yeah. Um okay, one last question from me is around Baba Mahar. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, yeah, but, 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 no, no. Baba Mayer, yeah. Baba Mayer. Okay. Yeah. Um just the I mean, I'd always known that. You know, that's where the he was the inspiration for naming the song Bob O'Reilly. And yeah, yeah, but yeah. I didn't realize how deep that sort of devotion went. Do you know if if Pete still practices any of that kind of like, you know, Eastern meditation or philosophy or religion or Buddhism or anything like that? What was the impact, do you think? I don't know if he does now, uh, because, okay. you know, we're talking about so many years ago. Yeah. You? And, and at the time, in the 60s, early 70s, that was very fashionable. Very fashionable, yeah. Beach and, boys, and not Beatles. just fashionable, but a lot of people got seriously into it, you know. And it stuck with them for a long time in their creative output, mm-hmm. for better or for worse, but it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if, because there's no out- output apart from that last album, and there's no there's no hint of it there, but, I mean, there's, there's no output that from... Townsend personally that that says yes or no. Yeah. You know? Okay. Just curious. I didn't realize yeah. the deep the depth of um the well of influence that was having on him. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it did a lot, a lot of people. It sounds like they're about romantic love or about like spiritual love to him, like yeah. eager or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so to wrap it up, we I gotta ask Mike, what's your favorite Who song? <laughs> well, it's a bit like asking you, you know, what's your favorite Dylan uh-huh. song? You, you, you could, you, which twenty do you want to know? <laughs> no, with, no, with, with with the Who, I'd say uh, I think uh, I can see for miles, mm. which is like a great hint of psychedelia, but not overtly, you know, not an overtly mishmash of psychedelia. But it's got all those elements of of that period, mm-hmm. wonderfully produced, but still with that same dynamic. I mean. It's still like put it this way. It still sounds like Keith Moon, not not a drum machine, yeah. Mm-hmm. True, <laughs> but um, no, it's a great, 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 great side. But they all yeah. are. I mean, all those those singers are fantastic. Of course, you know, Happy Jack, and uh, you know, obviously Generation, and uh, mm-hmm. all that stuff in the in 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 the late sixties was fantastic. Yeah, Dave, what's your favorite Who song? I, I was just thinking to myself the answer. I, I don't know. I mean. Uh, those singles off of Who's Next are incredible. So, you know, yeah. Bull Digger, Bob O'Reilly. If I had to pick, though, it would, um, I love like Quadrophenia is in my top five records. It has been since I was 12. And the bass on The Real Me uh, is just so, sounds so good to me. And then Love Rain Over Me is just uh, like that end climax scream is so great. Yeah. That reminds me of something else I did want to ask you about, Mike. It becomes clear that I wondered if, I wonder how you feel. Here's my thesis. You tell me if I'm, what you think. It it feels to me that Pete becomes almost un, incapable of creating an album unless it has a theme, unless it's built around, you know, this rock opera theme, or it's about Tommy, or it's about Quadrophenia. It can't, nothing, now I'm less familiar with like face dances and uh, the, you know, the, the stuff that came out around the late seventies, early eighties, but it seems to me that it, 
he he can't just put out an album with a bunch of songs that he's writing that he likes at the time. It's either got to have a theme or he can't wrap his mind around it. Is that am I minimizing? Am I you know illegitimizing what he did? I don't know. I I don't think his stuff's as the, always as thematic as. I mean, it is when it's deliberately so, obviously, like the old idea of the concept album. Well, that, that, that you know, that they almost started that. But um, but uh, I don't really, I mean, that last album, for instance, Who, mm-hmm. that's got no theme whatsoever. True, good point. Okay. Uh, and it's such a brilliant variety of stuff. And yet, you know, it's, you know, you, you know, it's by the same bunch of musicians. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, but it's, uh, there's no theme there. It wasn't really... There wasn't really much of a theme in um, Endless Wire, you know, the latest stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, Endless Wire did have a six song, like a opera. Mini suite oh, no, it, no, like no, that. it had one of his little mini operas, as he calls them. That's a different yeah. thing. But the overall, yeah. the, the overall album outside that right. wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't thematic. Yeah. yeah. It just seemed to me like he was more comfortable. He became more comfortable creating uh, within a theme. Under the well, under the umbrella, I think it was probably worth it for a long period, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and uh, as Dave said, hence things like these so-called mini operas. Often they're linking they're linking quite separate tunes, but but yeah. he's happier when they when they're under this under an umbrella, you know. Yeah, one of the other, and it reminds me of something else I read in the book about the Rock is Dead, Long Live Rock project, which was going to oh, be right. four sides, right, and each band member is in charge of their own side. And even that, which could have been just a collection of songs by four people that to him even seemed like a theme that sparked his creativity that got him excited, you know? Yeah. Like everyone, all I'm open to everyone else's song suggestions. So long as they fit under my theme, which is you get your own side to this record. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. All right. Well, uh, that's pretty much everything for me. What about you, Dave? Did you have any lingering questions you wanted to ask a Who expert? Actually, I want to ask you, John. What's your favorite Who song? You didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been. I have never tired of Baba O'Reilly. We um, yeah. we just bought a Tesla recently, and wow. um, to, I know to test out the stereo in the Tesla. I turned on Baba O'Reilly because the the beginning of that song just has never ceased to absolutely excite me. You yeah. hear those, that synthesizer thing going on and I get chills just thinking about it. It's Great. never gotten old to me. And speaking of which, my second favorite song or sometimes my first is Eminence Front because, yes, because I love, I love when Pete finds a synthesizer pattern that he gets off on. I get off on it too, you know? I love it. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, getting in tune, five fifteen, magic bus. Those are also up there, but Baba and Eminence Front are probably the top two. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I mean, how many musicians were utilizing synthesizers in seventy seventy one? I know to that extent, I agree. Yeah, yeah. It just added power. Whereas I think a lot of other bands saw synthesizers as weakening their power. Pete yeah, found yeah, a way yeah. to get it to add to the power. To the drama, yeah. you know. So Queen on their first record said no synthesizers were right. used in this record. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Mike, thanks for talking with us. The book's been out about a month now, right? Have you seen a good response? Are you happy with it? Uh, no, it's only been out. Well, I don't know about the, the, the in the states. It's only been out uh, 
minus one day here. It comes out tomorrow. Oh, it does. Oh, I had the wrong month. I thought it was. I thought it came out in September. No, I don't. Right. No, no, okay. today. Yes. No, today it's the seventh. What? When's the seventh? It's the eighth. The seventh today. was the seventh. yesterday. <laughs> came out yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I had the month wrong. That's right. Well, yeah. great. Okay. Well, it's came out yes. there now for anyone who wants it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and I should say this was true for the New Order book as well. These things. These books are gorgeous. I mean, they they're practically functional coffee table books because they're mm -hmm. packed with so many pictures that no one's seen before and they're glossy yeah. and beautiful and uh, the packaging is beautiful, everything. So yeah, thanks for talking with us, Mike. This was a lot of fun. When you, when you mention coffee table books, it always rem reminds me of that great episode in Seinfeld when <laughs> when when Kramer said, I've got a coffee table book, I've just made it myself. And he bought this big book like that and pulled out these legs and it was actual coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I would say this book's better than that one. <laughs> yeah, the Who, much too much. And uh, Mike, maybe we'll have to do this again sometime. If you love to one of your yeah. other other older books, or if you write a new one or whatever, let us know. We'd love to do it. Okay, love to. Okay, great, to, great talking to you. You too, Mike. All right, there I have it, Mike Evans, The Who, Much Too Much. We're going to close it out with that song, <laughs> "Bald Headed Woman." This is Jimmy Page playing guitar on a Who song. Maybe everybody knew that except me. I don't know. I didn't know about this song until I read Mike's book. So uh, check out the books. Go to the website at least and see what they have there. Everything they put out is really high quality and it's beautiful. And if you've never read a Who book, this is probably like a really great starting guide, you know, starting point for you. Uh, anyway, thanks to Mike. Thanks to Dave Carruth, my buddy, for um, doing these book clubs with me. And we will be back on Tuesday with a regularly scheduled episode. All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Time. I've done my time. I've done my time.